Alright, well here we go. Uh, as Pastor Janice mentioned, if you don't already know me, my name's Jeff. I'm the assistant pastor here. And uh, if I'm doing my math right, this is week eight of this series. Um, we, if, if, you, if you're not going the right way yet, don't worry, there's still time for you to start going the right way. Um, I'm thrilled, honestly, me personally, I love being in a place for a really long time, uh, especially when I was in college, I was the guy who, if you tell me that we're doing like a, a year-long sermon series on the book of Obadiah or something like that, I'm all in on that, because I just like to see all the meat that we can pick off the bones and how much we can possibly get out of a certain place. So I love coming back to John time and time again to see uh, what we get to learn. But the thing is, at this point, we're in a little bit of a race against time because we need to get to a certain point by Easter. And so by necessity, we're having to kind of cut out a small portion of John. Uh, but let me just take a moment to catch you up on what goes on uh, in, in the middle of all that. Because last week, Pastor Joe uh, was in uh, John chapter 6. Today, I'm going to be in John chapter 11. So I'm going to do like super reductive. Okay, just bear that in mind. Super reductive uh, recap of what happens in 7 through 10. So if you read now, if you read through uh, John chapter 7 through John 10, you're going to see ongoing debate. You're going to see like constant arguing and conflict over who Jesus is and where he really comes from. You're going to see debate over the nature of Jesus's opponents or his critics. There's a conversation about are they children of God? Are they children of Abraham? And Jesus calls them children of the devil. So we read that. In John chapter 8, we read the famous story of the woman who's caught in adultery and brought to Jesus. And at the end of it all, he tells, uh, he tells them, whoever was without sin, go ahead, throw the first stone. And everybody drops their stones and walks away. And then Jesus says, I don't condemn you either. Now go and leave your life of sin. Uh, then in John chapter 9, we read about a man who was born blind and the process of Jesus healing him. And there's questions about that, whether it was legit, whether he was really blind to begin with. If Jesus is capable of that, does Jesus come from God or is he a sinner? All the rest of it on and on down the line. And then kind of the overarching theme through all that is simply this, that if you knew and believed in God, you would know and believe in Jesus, Okay, that's, that's kind of the thread that runs through those chapters. And Jesus, as he says later in John chapter 14, which we might hit in the coming weeks, Jesus shows the Father, right? One of the disciples asked, Jesus, show us the Father. And he says, have you been with me this whole time and you haven't seen the Father? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Okay, so Paul lays this out later in the, in the book, of, uh, book of Colossians when he writes a letter to the Colossians. And he says that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. So he gives God flesh and bones and a face and a voice. And this is important. So boiled down is really simple. It's not necessarily easy to apply, but it's really simple to recognize the principle. If you want to see God, if you want to know what God is like, you look at Jesus. And so that's where we get to be. So through this series, the question that we're asking is, what are you going to do with the evidence for Jesus? John is writing this letter to you so that you may believe, and he's given you eyewitness accounts. He's saying, I was there. I saw this. I experienced this. This is who it was. This is what happened. This is how people responded to it. I was there. Okay, now you and I get to decide what we're going to do with that. If we're going to believe it, and if we're going to come and see what this is all about, or if we're going to chalk it off to, you know, evil white men perpetuating the Bible and making up stuff just to get you in line. We get to decide what we're going to do with it, okay? So today, we're going to be in John chapter 11. We're going to go through it little bit by little bit, and then after we get through all the details, we'll go through and look at what we need to learn and apply from it, okay? So at the beginning of John chapter 11, we read that Lazarus of Bethany 
whose sisters were Martha and Mary, and uh, he, he's sick. We, we hear that Lazarus is sick. Now, John points out this is the same Mary who would later anoint Jesus' feet with ointment and wipe, uh, wipe his feet with her hair, which I find this really interesting because when I read that, I looked back to see, okay, where did we see this? Uh, this hasn't happened yet. Okay, so John is telling us about a person that he hasn't introduced us to yet because he's that excited because this stuff is all going, around, going on. So the sisters send for Jesus, okay? So you got Martha, Mary, and Lazarus, and they're in a place called Bethany, and they send for Jesus, which I don't know this definitively. I didn't read it in a commentary or anything, but when you say sent for versus went to, the implication there is that you send a messenger. You send somebody to spread the word. I also presume that Martha and Mary would stay behind with Lazarus, taking care of him, tending toward him. They probably couldn't take Lazarus to Jesus or else they would, right? So they send a messenger to Jesus. So Jesus then says, this illness doesn't lead to death. It's for the glory of God, that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Okay, so we're going to pick up, uh, starting in John chapter 11, we're going to read 5 through 16. Um, now, this is always going to be up on the screen, but I would encourage you to take out your Bible, whatever translation that you have, and follow along. So John 11, 5 through 16. It says, now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So, when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and you're going there again? Jesus answered, are there not twelve hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. After saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he'll recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant taking rest and sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I'm glad that I was not there so that you may believe, but let us go to him. So Thomas called Didymus, or called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. So this kind of sets up what Jesus is doing, where Jesus is at. Uh, as you read the events in John chapter 10, you find out that Jesus was in the temple at the time of the Feast of Dedication, which you and I know that as the Feast of Hanukkah. It was also called the Feast of Lights. And during this feast, the Jews celebrated the cleansing of the temple because in the year 168, the temple had been desecrated by a man named Antiochus Epiphanes in that time. And then they got the, clean, the, the temple back, cleansed it, and had a celebration because of that. So while Jesus is there, the Jews gather around Jesus. They ask him to tell him plainly, are you the Christ or not? And Jesus tells them plainly. He says, I, I explained, I, I already told you and you don't believe. And so through the course of events, through another discussion, another argument, another debate, it, it culminates in the Jews trying to stone Jesus. And so that's what the disciples are talking about. They, they, they send him out of Judea, and Jesus ends up, uh, the text says, at the place where John had been baptizing at first, and there he remained. That's what you'll find at the end of John chapter 10. So we have to ask ourselves, where is the place that John baptized at first? So many people uh, believe this to be a region called Perea in a little town called Bethany beyond the Jordan. We've got a little map of it for you. You can kind of see where uh, Bethany beyond the Jordan is. You see Jerusalem and Bethlehem there on the left. You see Bethany just outside of it. And then if you look at the Dead Sea there in the middle, towards the, just a little bit above it, you see Bethany beyond the Jordan. 
Okay, so this past week, I watched a movie called Manchester by the Sea. I don't know if you've ever seen it. Great movie, sad movie. Uh, But we have these distinctions for what town is what, right? Because Manchester by the Sea is called Manchester by the Sea because there's Manchester, England. There's Manchester, Kentucky. There's Manchester, Tennessee. Manchester, Ohio. Manchester, New Hampshire for the election nerds in the house. And then, of course, there's Manchester, Massachusetts, which they called Manchester by the Sea. It's like this is the Manchester I'm talking about. It's the Manchester by the Sea, okay? So in the same way, you had Bethany, which is in Judea, which is right outside of Jerusalem, but then you have Bethany beyond the Jordan, which is where Jesus was, just north of the Dead Sea. So that's where they are at. Now, there are approximately uh, 33 kilometers between Bethany, where Mary, Martha, and Lazarus are, and Bethany beyond the Jordan, where Jesus is. Now, we're all Americans, so I'll just tell you, it's about 20 miles, okay? Um, Now, if you look and find out how long a day's journey is, if you just look up what is a day's journey in the Bible— you will usually find out that it's, it's, it's considered somewhere in the 20 to 25 mile range because with a loaded mule, which is carrying all your stuff, you could probably cover about three miles an hour. Uh, do that for eight hours a day. You're going to cover about 24 miles if you do the math. So if you track with me, they send the message to Jesus. It's about a day's journey. So that's day one for the message to get from Mary, Martha, and Lazarus to Jesus. Then Jesus stays for two days. And then Jesus goes himself. So that's a total of four days. From the time that Mary and Martha sent word to Jesus to the time that he showed up is about four days. Now, I find a couple of things interesting here in this first little part of the story. A couple of things stick out to me. First of all, John finds it so relevant to, to point out that Jesus loved this family. He had a relationship with them. He, he was friends with them. He loved them. And then second, many translations of verse 6 will say, so He stayed, which I don't know about you, but I find that a really interesting distinction to say Jesus loved this family so much. So when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed a little bit weird, right? And then you see, as Jesus talks to the disciples, he says, I'm glad I wasn't there. What's going on? Okay, You've, wouldn't you think that if, 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 if Jesus knew about this and if this sickness was so bad that Jesus would be urgent, if he loved Lazarus so much, why didn't he leave immediately? If he loved Lazarus so much, why did he tell the disciples he was straight up glad that he wasn't there? But I think the, the, the key to that is in what he says next. He said, I'm glad I wasn't there so that you could believe. Okay, we'll pick up the rest of the story or the next part of the story in verses 17 through 27. It says, Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out and met him. But Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God... God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the son of God, who's coming into the world. So we get this information that Lazarus has been in the tomb for four days, which if we just back up, remembering what we know about how far a day's journey is and stuff like that, then 
if I, if, I do, if I did my math right, which there's a chance I'm wrong, but if I did my math right, then Lazarus died very shortly after they sent the message off to Jesus. Because remember, day one, the message goes from Martha and Mary to Jesus. Day two, day three, Jesus stays behind. Day four, Jesus travels. And then when he gets there, he's already been in the tomb for four days. So he's probably, he probably passed away somewhere very shortly after they sent the message. And then Martha comes out to Jesus. And I just can't help but wonder what the look was like on her face. I really can't. You might read this and think that she's being sassy and mad and angry and all the rest of it, and she might be. You might read this and think that she is just resigned and sad and grieving, and chances are she's probably doing a little bit of both. I don't, I don't know what all she was feeling. Grief is a complicated, complex emotion, so it was probably a combination. But through all of it, the one thing that you can't help but notice in Martha's response is faith. Because she says, if you'd been here... Lazarus wouldn't have died. And, and then the second thing she says is that whatever Jesus asks of God, he's going to be given. Okay, so she has faith in her response. And then Jesus tells Martha that her brother will live again. She says that she believes he will, but on the last day. Now, we need to pause and understand that resurrection is not a New Testament concept. It's not something that's exclusive to us after we you know, have seen Jesus become what the scripture calls the firstborn from, be, uh, from among the dead. But Jews of the day had Daniel 12, 2 in the back of their minds, which, which gives a hope of resurrection. But bear in mind, there, there's something in the wording of, of what Martha says. She says, I believe that he will rise again on the last day. Okay, so she does have hope, but it's somewhat of a resigned hope because while she'll see her brother again, it's going to be a minute before she does so. Okay, so then Jesus says, I'm the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Now, I don't know about you. I find myself getting a little bit confused and caught up here. But Jesus is just laying out the process. He's laying out the process of eternal life. And there's a couple parts, so let's break it down. First of all, whoever believes in me, though he die. Though he die. It's not if he dies, it's though. So people who believe in Jesus, you and me, we're going to die one day, and that's okay. It's inevitable. It's going to happen unless you happen to be lucky enough to be the next um, um, Elijah or Enoch who just got taken up to be with God. You and I are going to die one day. But though he die, yet shall he live, as in there's a resurrection that comes. Once you've died, you're going to live again. And when, and when you live and believe in Jesus, you'll never die again. And so as, as confusing as it all is, it's not contradiction. It's just process. Jesus is just laying out the process of eternal life. And in that, death is a necessary component, as paradoxical as that might seem, as confusing as that might be. That's what he lays out. So let's go ahead and finish the story. We're going to skip a little bit, and I'll just recap it. Martha sends for Mary after she's talked with Jesus. Mary comes out to Jesus. She gives Jesus the, like, word-for-word word exact same speech. She says, Jesus, if you'd been here, my brother wouldn't have died. But Jesus doesn't have the same kind of back and forth with Mary. He just asks, where did, they, where did you put the body? They say to come and see, and then we get John eleven thirty five, 35, which all of us who grew up in Sunday school, it's like, yes, I memorized scripture. I'd memorized John eleven thirty five. 35. Jesus wept. I got it. I memorized scripture. I'm a good Christian. Okay. So they take him to the tomb, and the tomb may have looked something like this, just a little bit for your reference. It probably had a small opening so that they could get in and put the body in, and they would typically put a stone in front of it. Whether they would roll it or put it up against it, they would put a stone in front of it. 
So it might have looked something like that. So then the Jews who are with Mary and Martha, they comment on Jesus' love for Lazarus. They say, look how much he loved him. He's weeping. While others say, couldn't the man who opened the eyes of the blind man, which happened in John chapter 9, couldn't this man have kept this guy from dying? They look at it as a logical extension of Jesus' power that if he can give sight to the blind, surely he can prevent someone who's sick from dying. Right? Now, I want you to notice this. In writing, this is called the rule of three, where you see an event or a statement repeated three times, and the the point is that it's going to hammer home the significance. Two times is too few, four times is too many, so three is the sweet spot. We see this in literature. We see see the three blind mice. We get the three little pigs. We get Goldilocks and the three bears. Um, And and just to, to modernize it a little bit, I don't know if you realize this or not, but in the, uh, in the MCU, the Avengers uh, universe, right, there's three snaps that do something significant, right? There's snap number one, which is Thanos, and it wipes out half of existence. There's snap number two, where Hulk has the, the gauntlet on, and it brings everybody back. And then there's snap number three, which is Iron Man, and he deals with Thanos and his cronies. I don't know if you ever noticed that, but there you go. That's for free. It's called the rule of three, okay? So you have Martha, Mary, and the Jews, and they all repeat the same idea that if Jesus had been around, Lazarus wouldn't have died. So we want to hang on to that. And then as the story finishes up, we read verses 38 through 44, and we see this. So then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, in case you forgot, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead for days. Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. So here we have the story of Lazarus. Here we have the story of his sisters caring enough to send to Jesus. We we, we have the story of Jesus staying behind, Jesus going, Jesus interacting with a grieving family, and Jesus calling Lazarus back to life. So what is it that we need to learn about Jesus from this story? What is it that John wants you and me to believe out of this story. We're going to give you three things. Number one, for Jesus, belief takes precedence to outcome. Or possibly another way of saying that would be that belief is the most important outcome. As as with the rest of the stories that we've been reading in the book of John, there's an emphasis here on belief. Jesus' rule rule of threes it himself. He says in verse 15, he says he's glad he wasn't with Uh, Lazarus and the family, so that the disciples may believe. In verse 40, he tells Martha, didn't I tell you that if you believe, you'll see the glory? And then in verse 42, he says that he's praying so that those around him may believe that he was sent from God. In other words, to put it very, very bluntly, if Lazarus didn't die, that's less opportunity for more people to believe. Okay, it's less opportunity for Martha and for Mary. For the Jews, if you read down, uh, you'll see later in John chapter 11, many Jews come to faith in Jesus because of this, and it's less opportunity for the disciples to believe as well. So more people believe because of what happened to Lazarus. 
Now, you may be hearing this thinking to yourself, isn't that a little bit morbid that, that Jesus would put Lazarus through this just so that other people could believe? I mean, I think it's a yes and no situation because if you, if you hold death in a certain paradigm, then yes, it seems morbid. But if you have Jesus' paradigm where he doesn't look at it as being so ultimate and so final, he doesn't glorify it like it's the worst possible thing that can happen to someone, then it's not so morbid. And I think that you and I could criticize Jesus if he held this view in a lofty, abstract kind of way where he never actually had to experience this. But he did, friends. He did. He experienced death, and it was a big deal. Later on, you'll read about Jesus being in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he is praying and praying and praying, and he is sweating blood, which means he was really stressed out. Okay? And he prays multiple times, Father, if there's any other way to save everyone, if there's any other way to atone for their sins, let it happen. But whatever happens, not my will, but your will be done. He didn't embrace the cross because it wasn't a big deal. He didn't just say, oh, all I got to do is die and I'm going to get back up out of the grave anyway. No, there was something about dying that was still a big deal to Jesus. Yet all the same, it was necessary so that people could believe. Because belief is the priority. Jesus will use any means necessary. He will not cause any means necessary, but he will use any means necessary to get you to believe. Belief, however, is often forged in pain, in darkness, in grief, and in grim circumstances. Belief was formed for the disciples and Martha and Mary and the Jews in the story of Lazarus's sickness and his death. It was a necessary component of them believing. Number two, resurrection involves a stench. The, the text that I use actually says odor, but I just feel like stench is a nastier word, so I wanted to go with stench personally. Um, but, you know, at first I was reading this, and I, I read the, the little thing that Martha said, and I thought it was kind of funny, but then I stopped and I had to think about it for just a second, because in a very, very, very small way, Martha's kind of objecting to Jesus doing this resurrection business, right? She's like, Lord, no, 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 if you move that stone, it's going to smell, because there's a dead body in there, and it's hot, right? If you move the stone, it's going to smell. I don't know if she thought that he would just do it without moving the stone. I don't know if she thought that he needed to go buy an air freshener or what the deal was. But she was saying, don't move the stone because it's going to smell. How often do you and I do that? Seriously. How often do you and I want God to do something, but we don't want it to happen if it's going to involve something? If we start to peel back the layers of the things that are, that are wrong with us and broken in us, and listen, my issues got issues, okay? It, it, it's, it's, it's all of us. <clears throat> Something's going to come up as God moves that stone back. At this church, we have a saying, come as you are, but don't stay that way, which means that you, if you want to see what God's going to do in your life, you will necessarily change. It is a part of the process. If, if we want God to move, to work, to, to restore, to set right, and ultimately to resurrect our lives, there's going to be a stench. So where are you asking God to bring you to life, and what is the smell that you don't want to face? Are you asking God to resurrect your marriage, but, but you won't think about the, the, the bitterness, the pain, the betrayal, the unforgiveness, or just the fact that, that after years and years of marriage, you and your, your, your spouse are different people? I once heard someone say that my wife has been married to five different men over the course of her life, and they've all been me, right? Because we change. 
Because, because the person you fell in love with when you were in your mid-20s is not the same person years later. We go through life, we buy houses, we, we experience uh, financial crises, we experience job changes, we move, all that sort of thing. And with that comes change that you and I have to deal with. And sometimes we just ignore it and we wait for it to sort itself out, but it never will. Are you asking God to resurrect your spiritual life, but you're not willing to face the fact that you love everything in life except for him? That you have a hundred things you'd rather do in the morning than, than take some time to pray for somebody, than take some time to study your Bible. You leave no room in your, in your, in your schedule, in your routine, in your rhythms for, for meaningful Bible study, for meaningful prayer time, to spend time with people around you, some people who, who need you and other people who you need. You realize that scripture refers to us as being uh, living stones that are building up God's house. And I don't know if you ever thought about this, but when you have a brick in a house, okay, you don't just stack bricks on top of each other. People who are smarter than me could explain it better. But when you have a brick, there's two bricks underneath it that hold it up. There's two bricks beside it that hold it in. And there's two bricks above it that it helps to hold up. And in the same way, there's people that we rely on for support. There's people that hold us in, that are in our boat. And there's people that you and I uphold and we support and we pour into. A question for us to consider is this, and you can write this down if you're the writing down type of person. What do I want God to resurrect and what am I going to smell when he moves the stone? Because I believe he'll move it. I really, really do. I'm of the mind that the vast majority of the reasons why things don't change in our lives because we don't want to see what really has to change. We don't want to roll the stone back. We don't want to see what's behind there. We just want God to do his business and bring it out and, and there be no pain involved. You can, you can ignore your bad financial situation, but at some point you're going to be trying to make a purchase and it's all going to come to a head. And you're going to realize that something's got to change. You've got to start doing, making different decisions. You've got to start creating different habits and different disciplines. You can ignore house projects. This is me. I'm picking on myself for a second. Every so often, the wind blows in and it knocks down your gate. And that, that gate that you've been putting off fixing, you eventually got to actually fix it. right? You actually got to build it. Because sometimes life is going to expose the things that you and I need to deal with. You can ignore the warning signs in your marriage, but eventually things are going to come to a head and you're going to have to deal with it. So what smell are you trying to avoid and what is it going to take for you to, to, to let God move the stone away? And then number three, for Jesus, resurrection is greater than prevention. I, I, I can't come to this text anymore and not see that, that, that everybody involved, everybody involved, believes that if all Jesus did, like if, if he had just literally physically been there, then Lazarus wouldn't have died. Martha believed it. Mary believed it. Lazarus probably believed it. The Jews all believed it. And yet Jesus wasn't there. Why? Why not? We carry this mindset about God with us all the time. Essentially, this is kind of what the, the, the problem of evil boils down to. is like, if God is so good, if God is so powerful, then why does blank happen? And the answer to this question might sound a little bit trite. It might sound a little bit tired. You might feel like you've heard it a thousand times in your life, and it might sound like the most cliche thing in the world to you. But I honestly believe this. I believe that it goes all the way back to the garden in Genesis 1, when God gave dominion to mankind, and then in that dominion, in the middle of the authority, out of the authority that God gave us, we chose to disobey him. 
We chose to reject his commands, his rule, and his reign. So in that, I personally, I'm of the mind that we can't just assume that everything is ticking along according to God's perfect will all the time. I just, I can't, I can't get myself there because I see things like death and I see things like cancer. I see things like adultery, divorce, abuse, war, sickness, greed, cheating, stealing, all that kind of stuff. And I'm not going to, I'm not going to stand up here and tell you that I think God green lights that stuff. I just can't, I can't, I can't buy that. But this is what I do believe. I do believe that in the middle of that, somewhere in the middle of all that brokenness, somewhere in the middle of all that pain, of that grief, of the confusion, all of those things, in the middle of that is where God is working. Romans says that, that, that all things work together, and it says all things, not just good things, not just bad things, all things work together for good. So somewhere in there, we wrestle with this reality that God has the ability to prevent certain things, but he doesn't always do so. He could prevent death, he could prevent cancer, infidelity, war, but how much would he do so at the expense of our own will? How many of you have been in that situation where you have a beloved car and you just don't want to get rid of the car and you just want to do whatever it takes to fix the car and if it needs new brakes, you'll give it new brakes and if it needs an oil change, you'll give it an oil change. If it needs a new transmission, you'll spend all the money on the transmission. Like Whatever it takes to get that particular car running again. And at some point, you, you, you run into the, 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 the place where you realize, okay, I could keep pumping money into it or I could just buy a new car. I think in a similar vein, God isn't just in the business of preventative maintenance in the world. Look, when, when, when Adam and Eve ate the fruit in the garden, it set into, into motion a pattern of death, destruction, and decay. Suddenly, the world was destined to end. Right? But now, God is in the business of resurrection. So he doesn't just fix what's broken. He doesn't just make bad people good. He doesn't just make sick people well. He does all, all that, but on top of it, he makes dead people alive. And I think that's what the kingdom's all about. It's about reversing the pattern that sin started, where, where the kingdom breaks into death and brokenness and sin and chaos and darkness, and it imposes its life, its wholeness, its, its righteousness, peace, and light into the world. Because God isn't just going to keep slapping band-aids onto this world, okay? One of these days, the trumpet's going to sound the dead in Christ will rise. We're all going to go face our judgment day. God's going to chuck this, this heavens and this earth away, and he's going to create a new one. And there, everything's going to be perfect. There's going to be no more pain. There's going to be no more tears, no more war, no more death, no more destruction. And so somewhere in the middle of that, we wrestle with that reality. That's a necessary ending that I'm looking forward to, but right now, you and I are here. And so the question is, what is God going to do? What is God going to do right now? What is he going to resurrect in this place? So what we're going to do at this point is the worship team is going to lead us in one final song. And uh, there's people up here that want to pray with you. If you've been coming here for a long time, you know how this works. If you're watching online in the bottom corner, there should be a button that says chat. And there's someone there that really wants to pray with you. But I just feel impressed to, to, to invite a couple of groups of people. First of all, are people who have been questioning an outcome. 
something that's already happened, something that's in the past, but, but the pain of it is, is familiar to you and, and constant and perpetual and chronic every single day, whether it's something that happened interpersonally, something that happened physically, something that happened like emotionally or spiritually, whatever it is, but it's something that, that's already happened. It can't be undone. And maybe you found yourself angry at God for not preventing it. Maybe you found yourself saying, God, you could have spared me all this pain. You could have spared me all this grief, all this whatever it is. And you're angry with God. I want to invite you to come and see what God wants to do in your life. I want to invite you to to have someone lay their hands on you and pray with you. And see what God wants to do. I want to invite people who dread the stench of resurrection (laughs) who are afraid to see what's going what's gonna to show up when God moves the stone away, who are afraid of the smell that's going to come out and all the different things that they're going to need to do and change, and you just feel like it's easy for me to stay the same way. It's not great, but it's easy. I want to invite you to come pray. And then finally, I just want to invite people who you just need a resurrection. Whatever it is, whatever it takes, whether it's in your job or you're in your family, in your spiritual life, whatever that looks like, if you need a resurrection, If you need God to do something, I want to invite you to come and pray. We're going to do that during the last song. But right now, let's just go ahead and come before the Lord in prayer. Fathers, we come before you today. Thank you that you are a resurrecting God. Thank you that you are a restoring God. Thank you that your kingdom comes near to us in the middle of our brokenness. That comes near to us in the middle of our pain. It comes near when the thing that we didn't want to happen has already happened. You come near to us and you continue to work. We thank you for your forgiveness. We thank you for your grace. God, we just come this morning expecting you to work. We come with open hands and open hearts, God. We just want to see what you want to do. We want to see what you'll do when we come before you. We lay ourselves at your feet and we say, God, would your will be done? Would your kingdom come in my life? We pray this together in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's go ahead and stand up and continue to worship.